Dr. Dresner, can you present your case? Sure, Neil. This is a 39-year-old airline stewardess who presented with a new breast lump she discovered on self-examination. Excisional biopsy showed a 0.9-centimeter grade 2 lobular carcinoma with one of nine nodes positive. Tumor was ER positive, PR negative, HER2 negative. Relevant was a family history which included a 46-year-old sister who died of metastatic breast cancer while receiving chemotherapy. And there were issues concerning whether the chemotherapy contributed to her death. I reviewed options and suggested adjuvant systemic therapy with dose-dense AC and Taxol followed by tamoxifen. The patient absolutely refused chemotherapy but was willing to go ahead with tamoxifen therapy. She also had local radiation to the breast. Can you talk a little bit more about what happened to her sister and how that factored into this woman's attitude? Apparently, her sister metastasized rather quickly after receiving adjuvant therapy with very heavy liver involvement. She was placed on Taxotirzolota and did not do well with that first cycle. She was not given growth factor, developed profound diarrhea, came in neutropenic sepsis, positive cultures for E. coli, complicate matters. The sister had a seizure disorder, had a seizure, aspirated, felt respiratory distress syndrome, lasted about 10 days. Did you take care of the sister? No, I didn't. And this was the reason this woman didn't want to receive chemotherapy because of that experience? Yeah. She was very influenced by the fact that she thought the chemotherapy had caused her sister's demise. Dabu, how would you think through this woman's options at this point? Well, I think the concern, of course, is the one positive node and I generally would use chemotherapy as well. I often wonder if there's a subset of these patients that have ER-positive tumors that maybe have a really good outcome, and I wonder if the oncotype DX at some point might actually, just like it does in node-negative, isolate out a group of node-positive patients that maybe can get away without chemotherapy. But we certainly don't have those data now, and I believe that in this particular case, the benefits of therapy would outweigh the risks. Having said that, the benefits aren't huge. If you were to run this on Peter Abden's model, you might show somewhere between a 5 maybe 10% effect on recurrence and maybe on mortality, probably less. So it's not an outrageous thing to avoid chemotherapy, but I think the patient really just needs to be made aware of the general statistics that one might see and get a sense as to what the benefit is. Also get a sense as to what the toxicity rate is. Obviously, what her sister experienced is very different from what she is going to get. And even though there are some commonalities, obviously the risks of these types of things are much lower, especially with the appropriate precautions. What's the regimen that you generally utilize, Dibu, in node-positive patients? I'm generally using dose-dense AC followed by paclitaxel. I do use the TAC regimen on occasion as well. I tend to use that for higher-risk patients. Every now and then I might use the ER to influence me, but I try not to because I truly believe that this issue of estrogen receptor positivity, meaning less of a benefit from dose-dense AC taxol, but a bigger benefit from docetaxel-based therapy, I think is just a statistical fluke, and I believe that really either of those regimens are acceptable, but certainly the TAC regimen has more side effects. So for this particular patient, I would recommend dose-dense AC taxol. When you say the TAC regimen has more side effects, I'm assuming you use growth factors with TAC? Absolutely. Even with the use of growth factors, febrile neutropenia may not be as much of a difference, but when you look at asthenia and other side effects, edema, they are still higher in my experience. Joanne, how do you approach the decision about chemotherapy in node-positive patients? Well, I agree. I think 
Well, we kind of discussed this already in the wake of the Joe Sperano data, but currently I would recommend AC Taxol Dose Dense for someone who I thought was high risk enough to warrant eight cycles of chemotherapy if they were HER2 new negative. And if I thought that their risk for recurrence was low enough, for example, someone who was lymph node negative but ER positive but Oncotype DX 31 or over, that might be a patient I'd steer towards Taxotere and Cytoxan for four cycles based on the U.S. Oncology randomized trial comparing AC versus TC, which showed an 86% freedom from this recurrence at five years versus 80% that Steve Jones presented at San Antonio. So chemo light, if you will, versus chemo extended. This is a patient, however, though, she had lobular. It was 0.9 centimeters. The lobulars, on average, tend to be relatively chemo-resistant. She did have a positive lymph node. It was ER-positive, PR-negative, the so-called luminal B. This would be someone I would recommend chemotherapy for, but I'd realize that chemo benefit may be relatively small. And the other option that I would use for this patient would be ovarian ablation with tamoxifen, for example, based on European data. You have the data for the CMF trial versus ovarian ablation, which was equivalent. That was the ZIP trial, I believe. And those two are equal. And they're probably equal because CMF's main mechanism of action is to cause ovarian ablation in a premenopausal woman. So if this lady absolutely refused chemo, one option I would have given her would have been Ovarian ablation plus tamoxifen. What about ovarian ablation are, plus an AI, which you mentioned well, previously? Well, I mean, I think you have less data. You do have some data from the Europeans on this. So that would be something to think about because you do actually have randomized comparative data for that. Getting back to the TC, U.S. Oncology trial, and actually Dr. Hendricks was telling me on the telephone that she's used that several times and had a lot of problems with toxicity. The report that Steve Jones made was actually suggested less toxicity. What's your personal experience with the regimen? I think it's relatively free of toxicity relative to AC in the sense that there's so much less nausea. There are myalgias, which are increased compared to the AC group of patients. I think in the elderly or frail, I would think about growth factor support, even though it's 75 per meter squared for the docetaxel. But I think in general, it's reasonably well tolerated. So right now, for example, are you using TC instead of AC in yes, general? for patients in whom I don't think they need eight cycles of chemotherapy. Carolyn, what is it that you've been observing, I guess, in the few patients that you treated? I have maybe between five and ten patients. I have only a handful that's received all four cycles. But I have noticed some hand-foot syndrome, significant hand-foot syndrome in two patients. One of them was treatment-limiting, literally decreased grip strength, you know, the rash, the dry desquamation of the palms. And I hadn't seen that in a while, and I give quite a bit of tack. I actually thought that two of my TC patients actually had more toxicity than tack. But I just know it has to do with, the reason why I talked, mentioned it is because it is a new regimen for me and my nurses. And those two out of the maybe six or seven patients had more side effects than I'm used to seeing with TAC, but it's sort of like introduction of a new regimen in a community setting. I know there's a little ramping up for the nurses and my nurse practitioner to understand the management. And, but I had two women with significant hand-foot syndrome. Have you seen that, Joanne? You can see rashes with taxotere, mm-hmm. and that may be what you're describing. There are rare patients who will have peeling. Blistering, yeah. And that's much more typically seen at 100 per meter squared than at 75. And it did resolve to grade one on the day of treatment, which, you know, I used the guidelines for modification, but I was a little bit surprised. Two patients had basically no side effects. 
virtually no, because the GI is so dominant. I have a very young patient population. Average age is about 47. And so those two women just breezed, and they were thrilled that they had such a high energy level compared to the patients who receive AC. There's a difference. I'm curious, Joanne. I guess you guys in U.S. oncologists just finished accrual to your adjuvant study looking at AC followed by docetaxel compared to AC followed by docetaxel capecitabine what you saw with those regimens and why is it that now what you're generally using is those then AC paclitaxel that regimen is really toxic both arms were really very hard to get through and i think there must be some difference in using docetaxel after an anthracycline that really must change the toxicity because there just were a lot of side effects, a lot of febrile neutropenia, a lot of rashes, a lot of fluid retention for the group that got 100 per meter squared, and there were a lot of side effects for the patients who got the combination arm, and there were a lot of dose modifications. So I have a healthy respect for that regimen, and off of a clinical trial, wouldn't use it. I just want to follow up with this patient, Dr. Dresner. About 11 months later, the patient complained of abdominal pain. Blood work showed an elevation over CA27. CAT scan showed evidence of two small liver metastases, peritoneal seeding with early ascites. Needle biopsy of one of the peritoneal seeds demonstrated histology consistent with the original primary. At that point, the tamoxifen was stopped. She was changed to Zolodex and Arimidex. Unfortunately, three months later, showed continued progression on CAT scan. At that point, was changed to Taxotere on a weekly basis with partial improvement both the three and six months. So she's still having a continuing response. Dubu, any comments? Well, this is an unfortunate pattern of recurrence. It is, unfortunately, a pattern that is seen a little more in lobular, which has a tendency to go to peritoneal, pelvic, also pleural meninges. And certainly, I would have agreed with the initial attempt to use hormonal therapy that would certainly be my first option as well, unless the patient had a lot of visceral disease, which it sounds like the patient didn't, even though very symptomatic, mostly peritoneal. And now you're seeing a response to taxatier. How is she tolerating it? Doing well. Again, question came up about whether Avastin would be something to think about at this point in time, as it still is first-line therapy and the approval was coming through. Yes, she was already responding to the chemotherapy, and I was debating whether I was going to either confound the issue and not know if there was really additional benefit or that was just a continued response to the initial treatment. No, I think this is a person that I would consider it. It's really interesting how the bevacizumab data has played out. It was clearly a positive study. The primary endpoint was time to disease progression, and it nearly doubled it. Yet, partially, I'm sure, because of the approval issue, it hasn't been adopted that quickly. But I think this would be a reasonable patient to try it on. The one concern I would have, though, is in the ovarian cancer studies, there were abdominal complications, peritoneal problems, perforations. And because of the pattern of her recurrence, I would be concerned about that. Has she expressed any regrets or discussed the whole issue of not taking chemotherapy? Yes. I mean, initially, she sort of did a lot of rationalization as to why she didn't want it, but recognized the fact that her outcome's already sealed and now has a lot of regret that she didn't consider adjuvant therapy when it was suggested. 
Any final comments, Joanne? I would encourage genetic counseling for her also, because I don't know if she has other family members, if she or her sister have children or other siblings with children, with or without. It would have a big ripple effect and could change the natural history for the rest of the family. We have discussed that. Yeah. Alan, just wondering if you could go back for a second to the issue of the dose-dense chemotherapy in patients who are ER positive. I'd heard a presentation by George Sledge that, in fact, the Q2 week was no better than the Q3 week in the ER positives. I've also heard some data that the taxanes don't really add very much in the ER positives. So what if you just say something about that? Is there really any role for the dose-dense AC followed by T in a patient who's ER positive, even if she's not positive? You have to be very careful when you break things down in an unplanned subset analysis or a subset analysis that's underpowered. It is true that when you look at the curves, just visually, they dramatically look different. But we've known for a long time that the benefit of chemotherapy in general is probably a little greater in ER negative than it is in ER positive anyway. And there's less statistical power when you start looking at the ER positive subset only. So I wouldn't start to use regimens based on that alone. I think that if the study was designed to look at the whole population, that's the conclusion you have to make. Now, on the other hand, if a study is prospectively designed to stratify by these and powered that way, which is perhaps how we should be doing trials from here on forward, then that would be a different matter. This concludes our program. Special thanks to our speakers and our community-based panel of practicing oncologists. And thank you for listening. This is Dr. Neil Love for Meet the Professors.